A deal has been reached for $10 a day childcare across Alberta within the next five years. We'll speak with the Minister of Children's Services, Rebecca Schultz, to get details. And also with the Executive Director of Child Care Now for what this deal will mean for the province of Alberta. A climate activist from Toronto was at COP26 in Glasgow and had a bit of a run-in with our Environment Minister. We'll tell you what that was about. And the weather is wild all over Western Canada. Alberta and the federal government coming to terms, coming to an agreement for uh, participation in the National Child Care Program. Ultimately, the bottom line is uh, $10 a day child care across the province within five years. But of course, there is a lot more that goes into this situation and this arrangement and the agreement and how we got here and uh, what it means for Alberta families. So let's get some details on that. We're going to chat now with Rebecca Schultz, who is the Minister of Children's Services and the MLA for Calgary Shaw. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate you joining us. Hi, Shay. It's always a pleasure to join you. How are you? I'm, I'm great. Yeah, thanks very much. How are you doing? Doing well. I imagine this is something that uh, has been on your desk for a long, long time. And so a big sigh of relief yesterday that finally you managed to <laughs> get where you wanted to get. You know, I would say, and I, I said this yesterday, countless hours and countless conversations with the federal and provincial governments at all levels, uh, business leaders, child care operators, parents, right across Alberta, uh, and it was a great day yesterday to announce that we landed on a Made in Alberta deal that will support working parents, obviously meet the unique needs of Alberta families, which we talked about the last time I was on your show, drive our economic recovery, and of course make childcare more affordable for families in, in all licensed and regulated spaces right across Alberta. Now, let's get into the details here. Uh, like we say, it'll be five years before we see an average of $10 a day childcare across the province, but there's some immediate relief as early as next year, right? So explain how that works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of the things that we heard from Albertans, uh, you know, we had a $25 a day pilot program and we got some good feedback on what Albertans wanted to see and what parts of the pilot they really didn't like. And honestly, uh, one of the things we heard over and over is that they want to see additional dollars targeted to people who need it most. We know that that is exactly how we drive the economic recovery, how these dollars can have the biggest bang for their buck in terms of getting those parents and those families back to work. So there's a couple of pieces to it. Um, these dollars roll out over the next five years, a little bit more every single year. Uh, And so every province is going to have to make unique decisions about how they target things. We didn't want to have have and have not centers, pick and choose, you know, which centers and which parents were going to get to benefit. We wanted all parents in all licensed spaces, whether that be facilities or day homes, or preschools even, for part-time or stay-at-home parents, um, great option. We wanted all of those parents to be able to benefit. So, first of all, dollars are going to go towards reducing childcare fees by half, and that's going to happen through operating grants. So the money goes to the operators, and they okay. reduce the fee for parents. Then, on top of that, we have um, an increased subsidy model. So for parents making uh, up to $120,000 of household income a year, they will see an average fee of around $10 a day, just more or less. Um, You know, some parents in greater need might pay a little less, um, but really around $10 a day. Parents making between $120,000 and $180,000 a year, they're going to see fees between around $12 and $20 a day. Uh, And so then all other parents outside of that will still see that reduction of 50%. Okay, gotcha. That makes sense. Now, some questions are on exactly what kind of facilities or programs, or like you say, there are so many in Alberta, for sure. Uh, just reading the language that's in the federal government's announcement, they say the 42,500 new regulated spaces 
in Alberta will be among licensed, not-for-profit, public and family-based child care providers. So where do all the other people fit in that are, are not necessarily new spaces that are already mm-hmm. there, that are licensed but aren't public, that are for profit? I mean, there's so many different uh, components here. How does that all get worked into this deal? Yeah, and I mean, that's a good question. And that's what most of our conversations with the federal government have been around is our private operators and our mixed market system. Um, we know, based on the data that we've got, the vast majority of these private operators, this is not like big business. These are, in many cases, female entrepreneurs or family-owned businesses mm-hmm. that have started up to offer childcare, support their neighbors, support their communities, uh, and support, support families. And so we really needed to make sure that they were included. Uh, and there was a lot of worry about that when people heard the federal government talking about nonprofits. Uh, and mostly nonprofit growth. Um, we also know that quality and, you know, the cost or the fees were not really correlated with um, whether whether a provider was nonprofit or private. So we needed to make sure that they were all included. Now, when it comes to, um, you know, and I, and I would just say that that's about supporting all parents and the choices that they're making. Now, when it comes to space creation. Um, this is where in that 42,000, uh, we have agreed to focus on nonprofit, but also day homes. And so we would have classified that as a private operator. The federal right. government. That, is that's the family, that in- the family based childcare provider. You got, that it. You got it. Okay. And, and we want to reduce the barriers, right? For some of those unregulated day homes to enter the license system. Um, so that their families can access subsidies and they themselves as educators can access uh, workforce dollars and wage top-ups. Uh, and so we're going to do some work on that front to bring more of these day homes online. We know, too, sometimes, you know, space crunches in rural communities, especially we've heard day homes, uh, really need to be part of this. So that is exciting. Um, but we've even heard from our nonprofit providers that the innovation and creativity that has come out of the private sector has to be part of this. Uh, and so we said, look, with the federal government, we're going to work on what that kind of private expansion plan is going to look like. We can talk about that over the next 12 months, but we do not want to waste a minute in terms of bringing these dollars back to support Alberta working families right now. Jobs numbers are up. Things are looking good. Our economy is rebounding. And we wanted to make sure that these dollars are here to support parents and kids. I'm getting a lot of people on the text line, and I've heard this question. I'm sure you've heard it far more than I have. Um, my wife or husband stays home to look after our mm-hmm. kids, or I live in a rural community, there is no daycare. What does this program yeah. do for me? It just costs me more in taxes. There are people that don't use daycare and find other ways. Yeah. Um, what kind of benefit is there to them? Is there a benefit, or is, I mean, you can't please everybody all the time, I guess. You know, I would say this, and, and I said this yesterday, and the Premier did as well, like, this is not necessarily the policy that you know, I would have directed. I think that there is definitely a need for for this, for investments in the license system. I know that. I know parents need that. These dollars will, in fact, go to create spaces in in rural communities, uh, whether that's day homes or preschools or child care um, in, in a facility. You know, we we are really going to focus. A lot of the child care deserts are, in fact, in in rural. Alberta. And so, you know, I think about High Level or Hinton or Coaldale and Pincher Creek, all of these communities that have really young growing populations and in the last year have really felt the pinch for childcare. And so we're already working with those municipalities to say, hey, how can we make these dollars work for you? I know that some parents who either stay at home um, or 
you know, are using unlicensed care. We did ask the federal government if there was a way to include them in this plan. That was not part of their plan. You know, I, I, I'm certainly not ever going to speak for the federal government, but um, you know, there there is tax deductions for parents who use unlicensed care. There is the Canada Child Benefit for for parents. Um, you know, regardless of the choices they make. And you know, my job really is to work with the federal government to get a fair deal and to bring Albertans' hard-earned tax dollars back to Alberta to support parents here. Because guess what? If we left those dollars on the table. Our hard-earned tax dollars would be going to support childcare in every other province, from B.C. to Ontario and Quebec, and not supporting parents here. And that is not something I was interested in. No, I, I don't think anybody would be. But the fact of the matter is there were several months ago where this there were different plans that were put forward. You keep calling this a made-in-Alberta deal. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, what is the difference now to this deal that was signed from the one that was put forward by the NDP a couple of months ago and the one that was initially proposed um, that was rejected by the federal government. Like what 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 are the wins that you're you're championing here? The wins for us are really, you know, like I said, it's a lot of the things that the the NDP pilot left out. Private operators, choice for parents, preschools for, you know, parents who maybe do stay at home or work part-time. Uh and the delays really, I mean, the federal election got called. I mean, I, I don't think anybody was asking for it, and we talked about that before, mm-hmm. too. Um, that delayed us for four weeks. Uh, the minute the election was done, we had a plan answering all of the questions that they had asked, and then we had to wait a couple more weeks for a minister to be appointed. And once that minister was appointed, you know, I, I did express the urgency, and I think there was political will on both sides. Uh, and I said, look, you know, we, we need to make sure that we have as much flexibility and choice to meet the unique needs of Albertans. This is an area of provincial jurisdiction, as much as I understand, you know, the federal government's goal for a for a nationwide um, system. We have to have that flexibility as provinces to make these investments in a way that matters for our parents. And again, you know, th- there is only so many dollars in this program. We need to essentially spread that through the system in a way that it is supporting as many parents and the unique choices that they're making as possible. Lots of people saying, you know, I operate a private unlicensed day home. How does this benefit me? Do I have to get licensed? I mean, all those questions are going to have to be sorted out. But, you know, this listener says, what do I tell my wife that's been running a very successful unlicensed day home that may now go out of business because parents lose that choice due to funding? I mean, do they have to go and get licensed? And I tell parents, like that, I would say then reach out to us. Let us know. We want to know what are the barriers to becoming licensed. Why do you not want to be licensed? Are there things that we could do, mm-hmm. um, you know, to reduce those barriers and incentivize folks like that to come into the system so that those spaces can be part of this program? This is the time. Like, if people out there, providers, have ideas, please reach out um, because, you know, that, that is part of this plan is incentivizing some of those unlicensed gay homes to be part of the system so that those educators can receive some of these dollars uh, in terms of supporting their own wages and so their families can access these additional subsidies. Um, Minister, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day. That's Rebecca Schultz, who is Minister of Children's Services for the province of Alberta, talking about the program. And listen, there are so many questions, and they're all good questions, and I think the ministers heard them. Um, Lots of people reacting on the text line. And there's a lot of people saying, well, I have two kids, but, um, you know, one one of us stays home to look after the kids. What does this do for me? Um, Lots of people saying, I live in a rural area. There is no daycare. What good is this program to me? Um, Lots of me, me, me which is normal. I think we all sort of take a look at what anytime the government makes an announcement like this, the the reaction is you're paying for it. 
So what is the benefit to you? But uh, this text from a listener saying, shame on people who say, what's in this for me? I don't use childcare. Then fine. It doesn't affect you. I have kids. I don't use childcare. And I'm grateful for the time I get to spend with them. I'm grateful we could accommodate them. Why am I worried about a program that doesn't affect me? Because that's what we do, right? It's always what's in it for me. That's, that's the bottom question. But you're right. And that was the argument that both levels of government were making during their announcement yesterday is this will benefit you, even if you don't have kids, let alone kids in care. Um, the bottom line is um, more parents that are able to have affordable child care, it opens up options for them, um, increases the workforce, all the rest of these things, right? So, I mean, there are arguments to be made. Uh, let's get some details now on someone who's worked hard on this file for a while. We're going to chat with Morna Ballantyne, who's the Executive Director of Child Care Now. Uh, Morna, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, uh, it's been a long time coming, in Alberta especially. Um, your thoughts on the deal that was reached between Alberta and the federal government yesterday? I think it's great news. Um, great news for Alberta as a province. Uh, great news for kids in Alberta, for parents, for families, for grandparents, for employers. Um, it's, uh, it's wonderful. It's great news for Alberta because Alberta is going to be receiving from the federal government a huge chunk of money, $3.8 billion, um, to help the province uh, build a really robust, flexible, comprehensive system of early learning and child care. So I think it's it's great news. Yeah, it was a long time in coming, yep. but let's keep in mind that, you know, the first agreement signed by the federal government with the provincial government was actually only six months ago. So it's too bad that Alberta wasn't first. I'm sure Alberta, a lot of uh, families in Alberta wish that they had been first. Um, and it's too bad it wasn't sooner, but here we are. It's it's uh, The agreement has been reached, but now the hard work begins to actually build the system that's going to meet the needs of, uh, of families, employers, and everybody else. And I think that's the important point, Morna, because a lot of people are saying, well, what about, you know, this specific instance or that specific instance or how, I mean, this is a first step. This is getting the process started. I think we need to keep in mind that this will, as the minister was telling us, this will develop and there will be certain instances that arise that need to be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. So this is just to get the process started, right? It's not going to be the be-all and end-all on day one. Yeah, I mean, there are going to be some things that happen very quickly, though. Uh, the agreement calls for a reduction in parent fees uh, in, uh, in the licensed child care sector. So that includes licensed family day homes. It includes preschools, licensed preschools, and, and daycare programs. Uh, there'll be fee reductions of an average of 50%. That's half. They'll be cut in half uh, by, the, by 2022. So that's pretty pretty quick, fast progress. And then, of course, the fees are going to continue to drop so that by 25-26, families will be paying an average of $10 a day. The thing that is going to take longer um, and that is going to be more complicated is, uh, well, there's two things. One is um, the agreement calls for a lot of work to be done on what we call addressing the workforce problems. So, but, and that, by that, I mean the, the early learning and childcare workforce problems. So in Alberta and across the country, uh, we have a big problem recruiting and retaining uh, qualified early childhood educators. We need to 
retain the ones we have, and we're going to have to recruit a whole bunch more so that there can be a whole bunch more licensed child care uh, developed over the next five years. That's going to take some time because, after, you know, to get qualified mm-hmm. to be an early childhood educator doesn't happen overnight. And, of course, the other thing that's going to take some time is actually building and expanding the system to make sure that all families have equal access, equitable access to licensed programs. Um, And you make a good point in terms of that distinction about having educated uh, and trained people running these facilities. And the minister told us part of this was to incentivize everybody to get licensed. Um, So there is going to be sort of a new threshold for childcare, I think, established in a lot of ways because of this. If you want to qualify for this funding, you need to be licensed. Is that something that you feel is important too? Absolutely. Um, you know, we we don't want a child care system that is a, an expensive babysitting service, right? Mm-hmm. That is not what early learning and child care is. Um, it really, and, and the system has to not only deal with the, the physical and the, you know, the well-being, physical well-being of, of young children. It also has to be, the system has to be equipped to help young children develop to their full potential, you know, um, language development, all kinds of, of skills development starts happening at a very early age. And so we need uh, a system that has, you know, people in it who are trained, who can really work with children and also not all children, you know, their children come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, they have very different and diverse needs, and we need uh, an educated workforce that can work well with the full range of diversity of children uh, in Alberta. Um, when we take a look at that difference between licensed and unlicensed, I mean, what 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 sort of barriers are there, do you think, in terms of the unlicensed care? Not barriers, but just sort of the limitations. What's the difference between being licensed and unlicensed? And will it be a bigger burden on these operators? Well, you know, a big difference between unlicensed uh, child care and licensed child care is that, first of all, licensed child care, uh, a provider has to meet. Uh, it's regulated, mm-hmm. um, you know, by definition, and they have to ensure that certain standards are maintained. Um, and, and, you know, such as ratios, there can't be too many sure. children uh, per educator and so forth. And also what's important about licensing is that it's inspected. Um, so there's a constant review uh, and oversight of the system. And, you know, that is just so essential. I mean, we, we know how important regulation and licensing is, um, you know, for, for, for all kinds of things, um, you know, including our furnaces and so forth. You know, you want to make sure yeah. that they're... That they're that they're properly constructed right or else or else bad things can happen and you know throughout our lives we have we it's important to have uh things regulated and it's very important to have the care of children regulated um what about uh, the ages here of course like you say i mean early um child care is, is a much different animal but this does deal primarily with kindergarten and below and there's a lot of people that say well i have kids that are in after school care or before school care or the list goes on or the parents work different shifts things like that um is that something that we also need to be focused on and make sure we somehow get that to be part of this program eventually as well Yes, this particular um, agreement um, between the Alberta government and the federal government 
um, is, uh, you know, provides an expansion of child care and, a, uh, you know, focuses solely on, on care for children under six. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Um, there is also a need in Alberta, as there is a need across the country, for more public resources and I would say more, more regulation and uh, certainly more extensive universal provision of before and after school care. Um, in 2019, the federal government promised in the election that they were going to be looking at expanding, again, helping the provinces expand the provision of school-age uh, care right up to age 12. And our organization is certainly going to continue to advocate that that be done because parents of children uh, right up to age 12 need support. Uh, you know, school day does not correspond with the with the work day sure. for, for 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 most people, yeah. and um, you know, so that's that's a big area of concern, and and you know, that that we are certainly going to advocate for that, and I know many others are as well. Excellent, uh, Morna. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate you joining us. You're very welcome. Again, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. That is Morna Ballantyne, who is executive director of Child Care Now. Uh, you remember COP26? We talked about that quite a bit. That was the big climate conference that took place in Glasgow. Might even still be taking place. I don't know how long it goes. Two weeks? Three weeks? Uh, anyway, um, at that conference, our next guest uh, showed up um, and, uh, well, got into it with our new federal environment minister. So let's find out exactly what happened. We're going to chat with uh, Chris Kiefer, Dr. Chris Kiefer, who is a Toronto emergency room physician and the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Doctor, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Shay. I appreciate it as well. So you attended COP26, and it's fair to say you are you are an environmentalist, right? I mean, this is something that you're very passionate about. You don't always agree with the way... A lot of people do agree with you, by the way, but you have uh, you know different opinions on how we get there, but you are concerned about the environment and climate change, correct? Yes, I care deeply about uh, people, a clean environment, and uh, yeah, I think climate change is a, is a big issue. Okay, so you attended COP26. Now, was your sole intention of going over there confronting Ajibo? Uh, was that the plan? Or was there other things involved? No, no, absolutely not. No, I was a part of a, a larger pro-nuclear uh, delegation that was there to really put nuclear energy on the map. It's something that's been ignored by the environmental community, despite being the technology that can both guarantee prosperity as well as deep decarbonization. And we've seen that around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the nine major large economies that have achieved deep decarbonization have either been blessed with hydro, like uh, BC and uh, Manitoba and Quebec, or they've used a combination of nuclear and hydro. And that's what we've done here in Ontario. So it's just something that's neglected. It's a taboo subject. Um, and we felt like we needed to bring it up. And I felt like I needed to bring it up with uh, Minister Gilbo. So you, you confronted him. If, if people haven't seen the video, it's available on YouTube. But if you want to, here's part of it. Here's part of what happened. Just uh, This is just a segment of the uh, the situation as um, Dr. Chris Kiefer confronts Gibo, our new federal environment minister. Is that something, again, that you, you oppose based on your previous uh, commitments as an environmentalist, or has that changed for you? My, I, I'm supportive of what my government is trying to do, which right. is to, to find the best technologies. But, right. but again, you know, we, we, the government does, does provide support, but right. it's really the market that decides but which technologies yeah. we're going to, to perform in, in, yeah. in tomorrow's world. And it's not, it's not, it's not right. me in Ottawa or someone else that's going to say this technology right. will go ahead, that technology won't. 
But, but again, you've had a strong position in the past, so I'm just asking, has that changed based upon the scientific consensus of the IPCC that all four decarbonization pathways call for an increase in nuclear energy? I think I've answered your question. Okay. Thank you. I don't, I don't think you have, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, nice work, Dr. Kiefer. Um, obviously not impressed with his response. Was it what you expected? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, when asked about nuclear energy before, he's uh, simply said that, you know, wind and solar are cheap, nuclear is not, the market will decide. Uh, that's a pretty gross representation of the facts. Uh, we know that wind and solar energy um, do not provide the stable baseload power that we need to run modern civilization. And even more than that, on the environment and climate uh, front, um, they do not achieve deep decarbonization. After Glasgow actually was in Germany briefly, um, this is the land where they spent $500 billion on wind and solar. Um, while I was there, it was cloudy. There wasn't much wind. They were burning coal, gas, and biomass, and it was a filthy grid. Um, and it, it just goes to show that those technologies um, don't work. And you know what's surprising is Germany, with those investments in cheap wind and solar, actually has amongst the most expensive electricity in the EU. So uh, there's a, a big lack of understanding that Mr. Jilbo has, and I find that with a lot of uh, environment and climate activists. Um, they have very little understanding of energy, and the two are deeply entwined if we're talking about an energy transition towards lower carbon uh, energy. And, and, Doctor, I think you make such an excellent point because, I mean, there, there seems to be two levels of discussion here. There's the, all of, there's the discussion that is all very altruistic and, you know, it, it's wonderful. We're going to get rid of all the carbon and we're going to do this and we're going to move to wind and solar and everything's going to be great. And then there's the other level of discussion, which is the real world that says, yeah, that's not going to work, at least not yet. There's some major problems with that. Um, and then there are people who say, well, why aren't we looking more at nuclear? And there are people, there are a lot of people that I hear from every day saying, why isn't this part of this discussion? It has to be, right? Absolutely. You know, and the irony is that Mr. Gilbo was at a, a pavilion presentation sponsored by Labour um, called Powering Through the Coal Phase-Out Towards a Just Transition. This is a man who has taken every opportunity in his activism career to oppose nuclear energy, including the ongoing operation of the Pickering Nuclear Power Plant here in Ontario. We did a coal phase-out here in Ontario. Nuclear energy provided 90% of the energy to knock coal off the grid, mm -hmm. and it provided a just transition for those coal workers into high-quality, high-paying trades, uh, trades jobs, skilled trades jobs, and STEM jobs. Um, so not only did it deliver that um, coal phase note, it was the greatest greenhouse gas reductions measure in uh, North American history, but it also delivered a just transition. And Ontario has some hydro, but it's certainly not like B.C. and Quebec. And so we really are a model for other provinces, such as Alberta, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, to achieve deep decarbonization with prosperity. This can be a win-win situation, but the environmentalists, um, at least the mainstream environmentalists, tend not to see it that way. They want us to go back to a, a Stone Age Garden of Eden, right. uh, which I think we all know is not sensible. It's just not realistic, exactly. Where are we in terms of bringing nuclear into the discussion in Canada? I know there's been some discussion in Alberta about um, small reactors. Is it something mm -hmm. that is starting to gain some footholds? It is, but it's got very tepid support from the federal government. When uh, Trudeau has asked about it, he says, uh, we'll do wind for sure, we love solar, um, but maybe kind of, sort of, we should not uh, rule it out and keep options on the table. Um, and that's how he refers to nuclear. And that's ridiculous. I mean, he should have been bragging at COP about what we've achieved in Ontario. We have a world-class decarbonized grid here because of our can-do technology. Made in Canada, designed in Canada, with a 96% Canadian supply chain. 
So when you put up that, that solar panel or that wind turbine, that solar panels, you know, 60% of the world's polysilicon is made likely with some degree of slave labor in China with cheap, cheap coal, right? Mm-hmm. Or that wind turbine, the technology is all from, uh, from Germany or Denmark. Um, the jobs are in- as intermittent as the energy. Every 20 years, you slap up some new solar panels. Sure. Uh, nuclear energy, again, made in Canada. Every dollar spent, 96% of that stays in Canada. High quality jobs. Um, again, this is this is such a clear win-win. The government needs to come out and support, and not just the SMRs. We should be building more CANDU. It is a modern reactor that is very safe and has amazing spin-offs like producing medical isotopes and other features. Is that the concern, safety and waste? Are those the two things that get brought up most as reasons we shouldn't be going down this road? I mean, I'll tell you that um, humans are brilliant. We're great engineers. Um, all the civilian nuclear waste that Canada has produced would fit in one hockey rink stacked one telephone pole high. It's incredibly energy dense, three million times more than coal. So there's not a lot of the waste. It's been safely contained. If you want to talk about storage, um, we have well worked out storage solutions for nuclear waste. We do not have any storage solutions worked out for grid scale energy from wind and solar technology. So the people that say we don't have a solution should really be focusing on the fact that so-called green energy, wind and solar have a storage problem. Nuclear waste does not. We've contained it safely and we have permanent solutions for it at our fingertips. The environmentalists don't want us to have one. Um, I'm getting text docs and and, and you know what they are. Um, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima. That's not the Mm -hmm. same kind of reactor that we're talking about here, right? No, I mean, so you got to understand, so Fukushima, that was three reactors that melted down. Um, people conflate the deaths from the tsunami, which was close to 30,000, with deaths from Fukushima. And this has been extensively studied by the UN Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation. There were zero deaths as a result of radiation in Fukushima. Was this a major industrial accident? Absolutely. Was this a tragedy in terms of human lives affected by radiation? No. Um, Three Mile Island as well, right? Zero deaths. The uh, maximum dose that civilian people got around the plant was something like the equivalent of one chest X-ray. Hmm. Chernobyl, another story, yes, an old reactor type, <clears throat> and basically being run by the crew from the movie Jackass. Right, exactly. I mean, they did, they did ridiculous things. We've learned so much. It's kind of like aviation, right? Um, would you not fly because of the Hindenburg incident? You know, we've had aviation accidents, and we've learned an incredible amount, um, as we have with nuclear. There's been unfortunate accidents, but these are not at the level of catastrophes. You want to talk about an industrial catastrophe? Go to Bhopal, India, right, where Union Carbide gassed a lot of people. You know, even Chernobyl was nothing like that. I'm not trying to minimize that. That is a problem the industry has had to wrestle with, but they've done a very good job, and the safety culture is is second to none. And in Canada, um, not a single uh, death has happened as a result of nuclear energy, and unfortunately in my province of Ontario, over 1,000 people a year used to die from coal pollution, which is no longer the case because of nuclear energy. Um, So, you know, people might think it's strange that an emergency doctor feels so passionately about that. I mean, I used to deal with... Lots of asthma, much worse COPD exacerbations, all the other effects of air pollution. I don't anymore. My province is a leader on deep decarbonization. I am alarmed by climate change. I care very deeply about it. Um, and I found a solution which I think is, is not being talked about. I think it's kind of bizarre that I, I'm doing this advocacy and I shouldn't have to because really it should be such a common sense solution. But unfortunately, we have, you know, 30, 40 years of, uh, of prejudice to work against. Yeah. And I mean, I, I call Mr. Gilbeau. Um, his beliefs fossilized, um, and it's time it's time for those to change. And if they don't, then you know this government and this country is going to be held back. Alberta, in particular, has a lot to gain from 
uh, can do nuclear energy, for instance. You guys have tons of tra- skilled tradespeople, pipe fitters, boilermakers, welders, machinists, millwrights, the whole bit. Um, they could get great jobs in this sector. I was just up visiting the largest operating nuclear plant in the world, which is Bruce Power. Um, incredibly vibrant, flourishing community, intergenerational jobs. You know, three generations of people have worked at that plant. Canada's largest infrastructure project. Um, you know, it's a real magnet of economic prosperity, and we can do this. Um, and unfortunately, that's not the case with uh, the solutions that we're looking at right now in terms of wind and solar, intermittent jobs, um, the foreign supply chain. We can do better than that. Yeah, and I think you know we're hearing more and more about this, and it's through work of people like yourself, and uh, we'll see. I think, you know, maybe ultimately the minister is right that the market will dictate this, doctor. Maybe, um, you know, if the government gets out of the way. Well, I mean, the government brought, bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline. The government has given out uh, enormous subsidies to the wind and solar sector. And, I mean, the government has um, given out through their Strategic Innovation Fund money towards nuclear companies. So Mr. Gilbo is absolutely dodging the bullet on that. Mm. Um, the former Natural Resource Minister, Seamus O'Regan, was very bullish on nuclear energy. Unfortunately, uh, his replacement, the previous Environment Minister, uh, Mr. Wilkinson, seems to be not quite in the camp of Gilbo. But again, uh, sort of uh, very passive about this, right. this technology, which again has a proven track record of deep decarbonization and prosperity. Uh, doctor, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. You bet. That's Dr. Chris Kiefer, who is a Toronto emergency room physician and the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Okay, now remember, we talk about anecdotal evidence on this show all the time, and you can't rely on anecdotal evidence. I gave you my anecdotal evidence of my trip back from Boston with the PCR tests. Worked out for me. Everything was fine. I didn't mention that you have to do the, uh, oh, what's it called? Arrive Can app. They also checked that, okay? You have to do that. Now, I got a text from a listener saying, hey, Shay, we booked free PCR tests at CVS when we were in Arizona last month, but when we got there, they said they weren't going to do the test because they were too busy. So we ended up having to get one of those private ones at a cost of 170 each. It's a $40 test to go there, 170 US to come home. It's ridiculous. You're right. It is ridiculous. Lori on the south side says regarding COVID tests, it's ridiculous. I just got home from Turkey last night. 30 bucks for a PCR test to return. Didn't need a test to get in if double vaccinated. Okay. Then I got another text. My kids weren't asked for test results from all the time that they arrived at the airport in California till they left the airport in Calgary. Calgary Airport was doing random rapid tests at the front door to the exit of Calgary. Kids could literally see the street outside from where they were getting pulled for random testing. So here's the way it's supposed to work. You got to be vaccinated. You have to have a negative PCR test. You have to fill out the Arrive Can app. If you don't do those things, you could get yourself in really big trouble. Now, maybe some people didn't get asked. They didn't have to produce it. I did. All three of those had to prove it. Um, Maybe some other airlines or some other city. I don't know how it works, but you're taking a big, big risk if you don't have those because they can simply say you're not getting on the plane and that's it. Done. End of discussion. There's nothing you can do about it. So um, maybe they didn't ask for your test results because I think you have to enter them into the arrive can. So they've already got it. You have to upload the documentation already. So I, I don't know. I don't know. This is all anecdotal. Go to the website. Read what it says you need to do, and then I would recommend that you do it just to make sure that you don't get stuck wherever it is you are. Okay, uh, speaking of stuck, good Lord, 
have we seen a lot of snow in the Edmonton area. Pretty much right across northern Alberta, in fact. Blizzard-like conditions, uh, very windy in the south, and then we've got a huge mess in B.C. There's a lot going on in weather. So we're going to chat with Jesse Beyer, who is Global Edmonton's chief meteorologist, trying to find out what's happening. Jesse, how are you? I was really concerned when your segue was, speaking of, after coming out of all the COVID talk, I was wondering how you were going to do stuck. it. Stuck, Jesse, stuck. Yes, uh, yeah, okay, I, I got it. I was speaking of. <laughs> I think a lot of people, what, what, what is, I mean, how much snow are we going to see in, I think it's basically Red Deer North, right? That's where we're seeing all yeah. the snow? Yeah, it's a pretty confined line. We we talk about the setup a lot every year when you get the specific moisture coming in. We've had a developing area of low pressure. At the same time, we have an Arctic high dropping in. Now, we kind of touch on it on the news every once in a while called the deformation zone. And it's basically the zone on the northwestern side of an area of low pressure in the northern hemisphere that has amplified lift. So you have the rotation from the area of low pressure going counterclockwise. At the same time, you have a surface high with the somewhat clockwise rotation in the upper layers that are going to give you that amplified lift. And because of the amount of moisture that moved through the southern BC interior, because of that atmospheric river over the past 24 to 36 hours, we basically have a fire hose of moisture moving in and we're tapped into it at the same time. We have a very big cold front that's allowing all that moisture to rise and then fall to the ground. So that's kind of the science behind how this is happening. At the same time, you have that big change in pressure you also get a very strong pressure gradient. So we're going from pretty high pressure to the northwest to very low pressure across the southern prairies right now, and that's where we're getting our wind gusts that have topped out between 80 and 90 kilometers an hour in Red Deer and Coronation at around 6 o'clock this morning. Coronation was hitting 89, 52 kilometer an hour wind gusts for the city of Edmonton, 67 for Lloyd Minster, and we've already had about 15 to 20 centimeters of snow on the ground. The good news is, and I know there's not a lot, for the city of Edmonton today. But the good news that we can salvage out of this is that low is exiting the province towards the east. The yeah. core is already in central Saskatchewan, causing major problems to our neighbors towards the east now as that pressure gradient has even strengthened, looking at even higher wind speeds for those areas as we head through the day. By around mid-afternoon, we should be looking at sunshine. It'll be wow. nice and sunny for you to go out and, and shovel. shovel. Now, how and much snow will commute, be shoveling when this is all said and done, Jesse? I think 20 to 25. Holy the, the pretty likely number. I mean, most areas, uh, people want like a blanket number for yeah, the entire yeah. city. There's, there's going to be very totals. You know, you could be set under a more intense band for an extra 45 minutes. That's giving a snow rate at a centimeter an hour versus, you know, two to three for, for other areas at the same time. So, you know, the range, I've, I've seen pictures on uh, on social media already from parts of the city, 15 centimeters in people's backyards. Unfortunately, people are going to say, well, I got 30. There's a lot of drifts going on. So what actually fell and what actually is stacked up? I mean, I, I've seen up to, you know, 70 centimeters stacked up in a drift on someone's driveway mm-hmm. just because they had that north-facing or northwest-facing or whichever direction your driveway's in, and you're going to have that a lot uh, stacking up. So I think what will be on the ground is, you know, anywhere from about 20 to 25 on the high end for localized areas. And to put that in perspective, you know, if you if you want to take another positive out of this, we've had a pretty dry summer. I think it's, yeah. you know, in the top five, if not the top three dry summers on record, you know, and that's going back a couple hundred years. I mean, the equivalent of this snow falling is, is, is you know, a, a pretty good convective thunder shower. So right. for next year, I mean, this moisture isn't going to go anywhere. It's going to melt into the ground, hopefully, uh, uh, next spring, 
I, I think we might be looking at the snowfall sticking around for the the better portion of the next few weeks as, as temperatures are, are dropping even more. And with the snow on the ground, it's going to be hard to, to get it to melt now. So, I mean, that that's one bonus we could take out of it. But this is nowhere near... Uh, the biggest snowfall that we've had at this time of the year, the record closer to 47 years. Uh, and that was set back in 1942, and that was in a single 24-hour period. Holy cow. So, so yeah, massive it, snow, Red yeah. Deer North, uh, yeah. wicked winds in the south. Now tell me, what on earth is going on in British Columbia? I'm seeing story after story. I mean, Abbotsford, Merritt, all the way through. The Coke is closed. Uh, Trans-Canada is closed. That's the moisture that we're now seeing that rolled through there and caused all the problems? Yeah, essentially we've had an area of low pressure that, that developed close to the, the Rocky Mountains, and that pulled a lot of moisture that moved in off of the B.C. coast. Now, we talk about this atmospheric river, and it's a mid-to-upper-level feature, and it's basically just pushing moisture in off of the Pacific, and that's where we typically see a lot of the big rain events that occur in B.C. with that amount of moisture. And you're, you're putting more moisture in there that the, the ground can even handle. Yeah. I mean, I, you look at some of the totals. I mean, they're staggering. 200 millimeters? Of, of rain that that's like 200 centimeters of snow oh. or you know what i it, 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 it's it's massive it's massive amounts of moisture and and this is you know a, a lot of people have been saying like what is this swing yeah you know we were looking at one of the driest yeah. summers in that area some of the hottest temperatures you'd have and see you know it led to massive amounts of of, of death with with the heat and the, and then you turn around and all of a sudden you go into the next season and you're dealing with record breaking uh, uh, rainfall all due to this atmospheric river but some of the numbers I mean the records are being broken by like a hundred millimeters like the <laughs> next closest rainfall was like sixty and other and it was like a hundred and sixty now so I mean this is not just a little change I mean I don't want to say you know you use that word change a lot yeah. you got to be careful with but 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 things are changing and we're getting these setups at you know typical times of year and then we're getting it. At, at non-typical times of the year. So basically the main reason for all of that is is all the moisture moving in. And it's at that time of, you know, the shoulder seasons where you, if you get that southeast wind or southwest wind and it's a nice big ridge, I mean, you can tap into temperatures from, from California, the Pacific Northwest, yeah. and that's where we can, you know, see a plus 10 daytime high. But at the same time, you get, you get the cold front coming in from the territories and we could drop to minus 10. So you have these very contrasting air masses at the same time, cold and dry and warm and wet. And we get these setups in the, the atmosphere where you have basically the, the turning point where it's going to be rain or snow, and then you keep that air mass about as warm as you can keep it to give you the most amount of snow. And, and it's just somewhat of a, you know, no pun intended, a, a perfect storm um, with, with the temperature profile, the amount of moisture at the right time that we have a front with a developing low with an Arctic high. And this is what you get, the Blamo zone. Yeah, and what a mess. Uh, good news for the mountain parks, though, in some ways, if you're going skiing. But, I mean, they had to close Highway 93. I imagine the mountain parks always get it more, right? They always get the biggest dumps. Yeah, and, and the upper elevations are a big contributing factor to that because whereas you would typically be seeing rainfall, because you're putting a roadway you know, past the rain snow line yeah. as you rise, then all of a sudden you, you have amplified. Plus you have, the, you know, the windward and the leeward side of the mountain, whichever side you're on. And, and I mean, some of the mountain parts could be looking at two feet of snow, if not more. Oh, oh and <laughs> we could be looking at 60 centimeters of snow on the ground. And I mean, we already saw road closures yeah. um, Bunch. at 30. And now we're going to double it as we have through the, through the overnight period and through the first half of the day. So you have to be very careful. I mean, travel anywhere in central, west central, eastern Alberta, even east of our border into Saskatchewan, it's getting worse. So if you're going the other degree, any way you're going, you're, yeah. you're, not, you're not doing good. And we talk about blizzards all the time. And, you know, people will say, oh, it's a blizzard out there. But the actual 
parameter for a blizzard mm-hmm. is four hours of less than 400 meters visibility with at least a 40 kilometer an hour wind. Okay. And, and you have there? that warning. That's in it, right on the other side of the border in Saskatchewan. So when we throw that term out and people say it's a blizzard, like what we had is not a blizzard. Like that doesn't even come close to what a right. blizzard is. That's a snowfall warning. You can still up that to a winter storm warning, and you still up that to a blizzard. And that's what Saskatchewan is dealing with. So if you're heading west, if you're heading east, if you're heading north, if you're heading south, I mean, you're not having a good drive. No, it's a mess everywhere. Awesome. Good stuff. Thanks so much, Jesse. I really appreciate the details. Not a problem. Thank Thank you very much. That is Jesse Beyer, who is Global News Edmonton's chief meteorologist, giving us a a breakdown on what's going on. And like he said, it's, you know, it, it doesn't matter where you are. I think those of you in Calgary are probably getting off the best right about now because, you know, I'm getting texts from people down in the southwest corner, you know, Medicine Hat area down around there. They're talking wind gusts over 100 kilometers an hour today. Um, And then we've got Red Deer North seeing a ton of snow, Saskatchewan taking it, and then BC. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.